No subscriptions, no network, no rules, and at the end of the day, my friends, no comparison. As promised at the end of our uh, coronavirus anniversary special uh, three weeks ago or so, uh, but All of America is back with a whole new slate of interviews. Uh, I don't have a clever title for this, so I was going to call it the Spring Series, but to me that didn't really – it didn't have much zip to it. Um so uh, maybe, maybe we'll come up with a name for it in retrospect. But uh, essentially the start of what will be uh, a series of new conversations, uh, likely with old friends uh, who haven't been on the show in a while. Uh, our guest tonight was on at the start of last summer, uh, the Summer of Strangeness, to help kick us off. So when I knew uh, that I wanted to start another round of shows uh, for 2021, he was the first name on my list. So uh you all know him, of course. He's written countless books in the realm of cryptozoology and uh, other topics like the copycat effect. Uh, he's he's an all-time great. He's a living legend. He's uh, the proprietor, I guess you could say. Uh, he's the founder. I know that for sure. Um, he can he can elucidate more about the titles and whatnot. But uh, I like to say he runs the International uh, Cryptozoology Museum up in Portland, Maine. Uh, had the chance to uh, check it out this past October. I can't even, I don't even know how many times I've been up there now, but it was probably like my sixth or seventh time. Um, and uh, every time I, I, I see something different, it's uh, it's pretty awesome. It really is pretty awesome. And we'll be talking about that and a whole bunch more. Of course, I'm talking about uh, the iconic Lauren Coleman. Welcome back to the show, Lauren. Thanks for doing this. Well, it's great to be here, Tim. I mean, after all, You've been to the museum so many times that you became the MC of our annual conference and became the night stalker with your uh, a Kojak outfit on. So you've been great <laughs> with the museum, and it's nice talking to you. Once again, it's uh, April, and it, we had a snowstorm in uh, Portland, Maine today. So it was just showers, but it felt like in this 20-degree weather that – we were going to go back into the winter. but So I decided to go get some lilac bushes to plant to remind myself that spring is coming. Indeed, yes, absolutely, yeah. So that was kind of the idea here with these shows. You know, it's the rebirth, it's a new start, it's uh, a exactly. new beginning here uh, for 2021. Um, and uh, ironically, you and I were talking about this book. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. 
So, just gonna say, uh, yeah, we were talking about this before we went on the air that the uh, that uh, today was the opening day for the Red Sox. So it's kind of, it's definitely spring is in the air, although the it's cold air right now. So, <laughs> the Red Sox were frozen out of another definite win with their non-hitting appearance. What a disaster! Yeah, it was a maddening yeah. afternoon, that's for sure. Um, yeah. Well, we can always have hope. It's spring is coming. That's absolutely, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Well, we're in New England, so it's uh, it's changed just in my lifetime. It feels like it's changed where, and I'm sure it's a little bit different in Maine, but it's like the, it used to be like winter kind of started in early November and ended sort of in March. And now it's, I don't know if it's because of the global warming or what, but it's like shifted kind of, like the dial shifted a little bit, where now it's almost like winter doesn't seem like it really starts till mid-January sometimes, and it, and it kind of drags on it well into April, where it's like it's not even until like the beginning of May that you really feel like like you've shaken off the winterness of it all. So, who knows? Yeah, I mean, uh, this winter up in Maine, we had only really a couple good snows. And we're really in the middle of a snow drought, so it's not surprising to us that it's still cold. But indeed, uh, what's also interesting is that the planting season is really starting earlier, too. So we're seeing, uh, you know, new animals up here like opossums and stuff that 20 years ago, 50 years ago, those were in Virginia, not in Maine. So everything is changing. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I, I've done a few stories like that for Coast to Coast where it's like animals that normally would be further south. Um, thinking about, I forget what they were now, like lizards or something like that, uh, or something, something like that. I forget what it was. Spiders or something, something on un, something unpleasant. Um, we're turning up like in Virginia or something like that when normally they're from Texas and shit. So it's, yeah, it's a interesting time. Um, so what's I guess to start things out, uh, I mean, we're going to get into all the sort of latest happenings in the world of cryptozoology, so I'll sort of hold that as an umbrella topic. But I guess just to – I don't want to put you on the spot too much here with this question, but how do you – because we talked last year at the beginning of June, um, and uh, that was when the pandemic was going on. It's still going on, of course, but now it's sort of winding down, God willing. Um, and this was when it was sort of just – you know, it was – we didn't really know what we were even in for. That might be the best way to put it. We, we kind of thought that it was – we thought that we had gotten through the worst, but it turns out that was just the first wave. So, But I guess the, the larger question, not so much the pandemic or anything like that. I, I, I Obviously, you're doing well. You've, you've, uh, you're, you're, you've made it so far that through the other side, as have I. I know we've both been vaccinated, so I think we're both going to be okay. Um, uh, but how do you think – as far as cryptozoology goes, do you think that the pandemic had any impact on the field at all? I mean, there's a lot of talk about UFOs, how people saw a lot of UFOs, probably because they were, like, stuck inside or just could all they could do was go out and walk their dog or something. So that's, like, they wound up seeing more UFOs. And, uh, you know, people – I also heard people were stuck in their houses, so they experienced more paranormal activity. Um, you know, how that might be explained, that's a whole different kettle of fish, but you know what I'm saying. So there's an uptick in, in UFOs and paranormal. But with cryptozoology, it's more like you've got to be out there looking around for this stuff. Um, so do you think it had an impact on, on the field at all? 
I think uh, in general, on the field of cryptozoology, everybody's a lot more cranky. And uh, I really see see that as, you know, if you're inside all the time, if you're trying to figure out things, you're trying to theorize, uh, there's more skeptics and debunkers involved. And, uh, you know, they've taken over Wikipedia. They've rewritten entries. There's a negativity about it. Uh, you have the whole notion. I mean, really, it's been over a year, definitely, uh, since people got together in conferences. And there was yeah. a intellectual exchange that occurred at uh, a cryptozoology and Bigfoot conferences, and most of them, um, you know, have had to cancel. And so you, the one or two that you would hear about, there would be people that would jump online and saying, who was wearing masks? Who wasn't wearing masks? Why were all these speakers without masks? You know, the most ridiculous things being yelled at each other and had nothing to do with the cryptids, nothing to do with Bigfoot. Uh, you know, who's hoaxing whom? Who's uh, putting documentaries out there that are really fictional films? So there's been a lot of the, uh, that kind of crankiness that I've noticed. And, of course... Now, psychologically speaking, I think that the pandemic has uh, this whole um, conspiracy, um, distrust, uh, not paranormal, but paranoid uh, yeah. flavor to it that, that's really coming out. And I think that that's uh, certainly sunken into the whole cryptozoology field. That's That's one end of it. So let me say... Quickly, the other end of it is, um, like in my business, I have a nonprofit museum, which means that, uh, you know, I, I am the founder and I'm the director, but uh, people oftentimes say you're the owner. You know, people in the media say the owner of the cryptozoology museum is coming on. Yeah. Air. And I have to quickly tell them, no, no, we're nonprofit, board of directors. I'm not the owner. What I've noticed as the you know the organizer, the founder, the director, trying to keep this museum afloat, it's been very hard. We're in our 18th year, but now along comes uh, small business association, PPP money, uh, grant money. Uh, out of the blue, there's there is an enormous amount of money around. Uh, we may have to pay it back over 30 years, but we've never been in such good shape uh, yeah. fiscally. E even though that's good. In all of the yeah, in all of the early years at the museum, we would uh, work on a, a month to month or month two months, have all our bills and get admissions, and then you know through the admissions and sales of the gift store be able to pay the next month's rent. Well, what happened in the pandemic, we had to close just like every place else. Uh, we got shut down for several months. And due to this, uh, we had to get money to stay afloat. And it caused us to actually have money. So we're <laughs> now in our 18th, 18th year. We used to share the space. If you remember, there used to be a, a little restaurant up front of the museum, and we had to use 
what they gave us for the door, which was really, they said, oh, we're going to do a mall and a plaza out back. That never happened, but we had to use the back door. Well, because of the pandemic, restaurants uh, here and there and everywhere in Portland and a lot of other places have had to close. And I don't mean just close temporarily. They've had to close permanently and move on. And so we actually lost uh, first one restaurant owner moved out and he tried to rent it to sublease it to somebody else. They moved in and after about three months, they closed it. So I went to the landlord, which is, you know, Thompson's Point, the whole development and said, I want to rent it. I want to expand the museum. So during this pandemic, we ended up, you know, being in better shape fiscally, even though it's debt. But also space-wise, we've now expanded uh, quite a bit of footage. We've recreated and rebranded the front. So we now go out the front door into the the parking lot. And right across from us is a $14 million children's museum that was built over the winter. And so there's an enormous amount of traffic uptick in the whole area. And so the museum is actually, as we climb towards our 20th year, it's not a flash in the pan like a lot of people thought it would be and just stuck in the back of some other business. We're now really, you know, and once once again we get uh, incredible reviews and on, you know, the the 15th weirdest museums in the world list and Oh, yeah, you're on all those lists. Every time I see one of those uh, articles, I try and forward them to you because it's like they always, yeah, they always get you guys. Um, One thing I was asking, I don't want to put you too much on the spot here. What I was thinking when I was driving around today uh, about our conversation tonight, is there anything uh, – I was going to say you'd like – you could like punch this one and come back to it later if you want. Maybe I want to plant the seed. Is there anything since you opened the museum that surprised you? Because um, I know you always kind of wanted to get this museum going, and, and now that it's up and running and it's a big, uh, you know, it's a big success. I, 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 you're going to be modest, I'm sure, but it's a really, uh, it's really, I'm amazed. I, I told you the story. I was at the grocery store. I was wearing the Bigfoot hat, and some guy, this is down in Boston, some guy stops me, and he's like, I love that hat. I just, I was just up at the Bigfoot Museum in in, uh, in Portland. So it's like, it's a, it's it's really becoming a uh, a regional here at least, you know, people. A lot of people know about it and everything. It's it's really, really. Uh, people really like it a lot. So I guess the the point of the question is: Is there anything you know, over the course of these eighteen years that surprised you about about the museum? You know, it's like, oh, I didn't think that, I didn't see that coming or whatever. Um, I, I guess it's sort of like it's been a touchstone for people in cryptozoology. Um, I don't think that most people thought about that there could be a place or there would be a place that would be a museum. And then because of that, uh, I've seen, uh, you know, success happening with, like in Cherry Hill, Georgia, there's a Bigfoot Museum. Uh, Cliff Blackman, you know, started his out in Oregon. And I'm really all for as many of these museums as possible uh, right. to start. It's kind of like su- the surprise 
about, for instance, the Dover Demon was that it became such a big deal uh, that everybody knew knows what the Dover Demon is. They, uh, you know, there's little toys made, and uh, and so now I see uh, the Cryptozoology Museum is on maps. You know, other cryptozoology maps that's on yeah. uh, people put it in their books and things like that. So that's the part of it. I'm trying to think about, I think certainly uh, for for a man my age, I work constantly, um, you know, overnight, every day on the yeah. museum. And I guess I never never saw myself being so busy uh, once I found it. I thought, you know, okay, uh, you, you probably just find the, you know, found the museum and then walk away and then it it, it <laughs> yeah, does yeah. itself, but it, it doesn't happen that way. You know, and so, um, but I'm, you know, I'm surprised by how much energy it has on its own and how much, how many people, I was in the bank the other day, and the vice president came out and said, "Oh my gosh, I see you on TV all the time now because of that new Discovery Plus channel." And so <laughs> I get, I get, I get that a lot, like you do, you know, at the store and stuff. Yeah. So, uh, um, but I, I think that uh, I'm surprised by how many people want to donate. You know, they find. Some little cryptid thing, or a, yeah, you know, some kind of uh, a, a can of food, or a spaghetti yeti dinner, yeah, or something, yeah, yeah. and they want to they they want to donate the box, and so we're getting all these donations. We we actually have as much stuff in storage now as we do on display. Then we oh wow, um, you know, we actually do some rotation. But for instance, Chris Murphy, who's been had a, a whole traveling exhibit, a Bigfoot exhibit for 15 years all across North America. He right. just donated the whole donation. Yeah, that was there when I was in October, right? That was the, the new stuff in right, October, right. right? Yeah, folks, right. it's amazing. Uh, I really, I was blown away by that that whole addition to the museum. Um, so yeah, I, I can't I can't speak highly enough of that. That was that was tremendous stuff. There's just so much. Fascinating uh, material and casts and all kinds of interesting things there uh, from that collection. And I think, I think we were just beginning to remodel the front with the tiki material. Uh, yes, maybe whenever we were there, and so we got another donation from uh, Chris Oric uh, with all of this, uh, you know, dodo and thylacine and a whole nother room that we added on. So, and more stuff has come in. It's just uh, been overwhelming. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. It's become kind of like a cryptozoological cultural institution in a way where it's like uh, a lot of people, we've said this on the show before, where it's like, I talk to a lot of people. It's like kind of like a bucket list thing. They, they want to go there. Uh, if they haven't yet, they really want to, if they're fans of this stuff, um, you know, especially anyone who's sort of a, a public figure in the field. Uh, you know, if you haven't made your way out to Portland to see the museum yet, you really, you know, you kind of have to. You have to make a pilgrimage to Portland to see to see this museum. It's kind of like a, like I said, it's a it's a cryptozoological cultural institution almost as much as it is 
um, you know, a cool place to check out. It's uh, it's it's kind of like like I said, you gotta you gotta make the make the journey to Portland to check this out if you haven't yet. So I always say that I'm glad we're doing this. You know, at the start of the relatively warm weather, uh, you know, people will be listening to this over the next few weeks, and and uh, and so um, you know, once the weather gets a little warmer, folks, and travel restrictions are lessening and lessening or loosening, I guess. Yeah, loosening. So uh, make your way up to Portland and check it out. I, I can't recommend it enough. I'll probably wind up uh, up there sometime uh, sometime this year, I think. So. Yeah. And next Halloween we'll have a, a whole new exhibit on the giant salamander of uh, the Trinity Alps, California. So that's a life-size, six-foot-long bronze a giant salamander. So we keep adding little things like that so people won't get bored that have come before. You mentioned something earlier. The uh, I don't want to dwell too much on the negative, but it is, you mentioned it, and it was one of my sort of, uh, one of my uh, pet peeves, I guess you could say, is uh, is the is this Wikipedia thing. Is the, <laughs> people don't, maybe oh, yeah. people don't understand who are listening. There's like an army like an organized army of <laughs> of online skeptics with clearly nothing better to do um who who like who just descend upon these cryptozoological articles and other paranormal things like uh you know anything in the paranormal and just sort of slice and dice these things um you know and and really in my opinion I'm sure they'll disagree but just sort of really just just kind of uh, you, you know, debunk just, just just trying to debunk stuff, and 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 really, I don't know. It's, it feels kind of underhanded. I haven't really dug too much deeply into it because it kind of makes me too irritated. But I just know that it's like this organized clique of people who are like, we got to make sure that no one's under the guise of education or something. Under this, you know, we have to make sure no one's we have to make sure no one's fooled into thinking that that Bigfoot's real. So we have to, you know, over over. Oversight skeptics and and you know all this stuff. So it's it's very they slant it toward the skeptical side. That's uh, that's my take on it. But uh, maybe you can sort of elucidate a little more about this this unfortunate um, you know online trend. Yeah, I think that what I started seeing it seemed like it began about five years ago, but maybe it was happening ten years ago. But I started. Noticing, and, and obviously I read the cryptozoology entries first and foremost, and there was one word that began, and I started noticing this was their sort of foothold to uh, get in, and, and all I had to do was look at my own entry, and I saw it was being hacked. Uh, any good quotes about any of my books, any good quotes by people saying, I was doing good work or uh, even the attempt to write a whole entry on the the museum that had to be uh, taken down and put under my own personal entry. And the use of the word pseudoscience started creeping into all of the cryptozoology entries. So it couldn't be, you know, a, a multidisciplinary approach to zoology it couldn't be uh, an interesting look at folklore, any of the other sort of neutral uh, descriptions of cryptozoology all got taken out and a decidedly biased and 
very political use of the word pseudoscience started off all those entries. So if you were a student or somebody that was uh, doing your cheat sheet to do a report, you know, you'd, you'd reading the entry and before you could get into any kind of open-mindedness, you were seeing that the word pseudoscience was taking people off their game. Uh, and I, I think that was unfortunate. And in my own entry, they, like you said, they they quote skeptics, they quote debunkers, they, uh, you know, demean people in a very polite way, but yeah. not enough to for it to be libel or slander. They just do a. I used to have an entry that would go on and on and. Uh, very diverse and very neutral uh, insights about my work and my different books and, you know, over a hundred books I've been involved with writing or contributing to. And uh, that was, that was like a three page entry. And you look at the entry for Lauren Coleman right now, it's down to maybe three fourths of a page because uh, I will not demean myself by, arguing with those people over and over again. I I tried to uh, point out in that talk section, you know, here's some references and here's what's happening. And, and after a while, I just got tired. Uh, and, that, you know, I think that's part of the game for the debunkers and the skeptics. They're just through attacks, you know, and multi-edit jobs and hacking yeah. jobs. They want to uh, win the game and it's and I think that's all they do, uh, just like you said. Yeah, it's really. I'm no fan of skeptics on this show. You know, I try to give. I tried. I've tried in the past to sort of give them a fair shake, but they don't play fair. They don't play fair, folks. No. So, um, you know, that's that's my take on it. Uh, maybe someday I'll have a, a different skeptic on the show. But the skeptics I've had on the show in the past, they their behavior subsequent to their appearances on the show uh, greatly disappointed me. Um, you know, mm-hmm. so that's that's kind of that's where I <laughs> leave off there. Now, what do you think? I'm going to pivot now to a whole different thing. But this is, I guess you could say, you know, obviously you know, I'm I I, I troll the paranormal news day in day night. That's what they pay me to do. So, um, the biggest sort of story I've seen in a while, Bigfoot related, is this Bigfoot bounty in Oklahoma, um, which I think is kind of crazy <laughs> but but also kind of ingenious like oh, who knows maybe this maybe this might end up we might luck into something but and I, I know you you've seen this kind of with the I, I think the tv show the million dollar bigfoot body was a completely different sort of idea but maybe not i don't know you, you'll be able to enlighten me more on this but uh, what do you what, what's your just for starters what's your take on on this idea of offering now it's up to like two I want to say I think it's like up to 2.1 million um, for I guess they, you have to capture Bigfoot to get the to get the money, not you know an unharmed Bigfoot. You can capture it, you get the two million. Um, what do you think of this bounty? Well, I think the use of the word bounty always instantly uh, projects into everybody's mind that you got you know dead or alive sort of thing. And you're huh. right. I, I think that they're trying to say that you can't harm them, that you've got to capture them. Uh, But I I do, from my 
reading, limited reading, and not really wanting to get on board with the whole idea. It seems yeah. to be, uh, you know, it has to be physical. It's not, right. uh, you know, not uh, just evidence or videos or whatever, because we know those are all full of hoaxes. But I, I don't, I, I, I also know that underneath it all, I've been reading that it's just a way for Oklahoma to boost their tourism. Right, um, yeah. And, you know, yeah. get people to go down there. And, of course, you can't say Texas or Oklahoma without knowing that there's a sub-theme of guns. And then I come right. back to, you know, they're going to go out with guns, even though it's physical evidence and and all of that. And uh, I'm very much in the no-kill. And there's been a real split for almost 60, 60 years between the, you know, are you going to kill a Yeti or are you going to capture a live? Are you going to kill a Bigfoot or are you going to capture a live? So I think this is just a, a regressive sort of adventure that somebody thought up to get get publicity and uh, get money some way from, uh, it, it's not straight crypto tourism. Straight crypto tourism, you know, does conferences or festivals in which they figure they're going to make tourist money with uh, people staying in hotels and stuff. Right. Well, this uh, bounty is just another way to get people flooding into areas and uh, supposedly staying in little motels and cabins and things. But I don't think it's too well thought out. It's almost like it's it's an idea that somebody just wanted to throw against the wall and see if it sticks. Uh, even though, like you say, it's it's getting stories now and then. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's an interesting, yeah, from my understanding, because uh, I've written about it a couple times now. So the guy, the state rep, he introduced this bill for it to, uh, he wanted the Wildlife Commission to establish a Bigfoot hunting season. That was the original idea. And everyone was like, that's right. crazy. Um and whoever, you know, never got out of committee in the uh, Oklahoma uh, legislature. So then uh, he found out you could go to uh, the Tourism Bureau or something like that, and you can get a – they can issue licenses for tracking. And the tracking is you can't kill whatever you're tracking. So they can issue Bigfoot tracking licenses. So then that became – the whole thing is to sell licenses, like, uh, yeah. as novelty, you know, they sell you a novelty license. I mean, I, I mean, I'm sure when they get it up and running I, from here in Boston, I could probably go on the Oklahoma tourism website and order a nice laminated Bigfoot tracking thing for like 20 bucks. You know what I mean? So I'm sure that's kind of what they're thinking. Um, and then it became because the original thing he wanted to give like ten thousand dollars to anybody who who. Uh, I think back – no, even back then it was you couldn't kill the Bigfoot. But it became too complicated. Like you said, people don't differentiate between between capture and kill, at least when you're out there uh, with $2 million on the line, right? So, so I, mean, right. I mean, look, if I was out in the woods with a gun and I see a Bigfoot, okay, and it's like, well, if he gets away, that's not just Bigfoot running away. That's Bigfoot and $2 million, so, you know, it's, it's, it's shoot the Bigfoot and ask questions later and hope you can get the money. Like, that's what, I'm sure that's what's going to go through anyone's mind, that by some 
amazing turn of fate. They encounter a Bigfoot and they happen to have a gun. It's like, no, I don't think (laughs) – how would you – how about this, Laura? How about this for a question? How would you even, you think, capture a Bigfoot anyway? Like, how could you possibly even do that? I mean, I don't, I don't have the wherewithal. You'd really need some serious equipment, right? Oh yeah, I mean, and and the fictional reality TV has dealt with it with the giant traps that uh, the mountain monster guys would always, in every show, they were building a trap. Uh, of course, nothing would ever come into the trap, but uh, the traps. Over in the Himalayas, in the 1950s, they used to have traps for Yeti, and that was how you were going to capture a Yeti. I mean, one of the underlying things that I'll go back to is the word bounty. In our country, since the colonial times, bounties were a way to pay people for killing varmint, Uh, you know, so... You know, there'd be mountain lions or bears or wild boar, and you would get a certain amount of money per head that would bring in that you had to kill it. So as soon as they started using bounty down in Oklahoma, it translated in my mind to somebody is going to think, I've got to kill this. I've got to bring it in. Then they'll, you know, they'll kill Uncle Zeke and try to bring (laughs) him in find out he's really in a suit and be charged with murder. So yeah. you've got all kinds of problems with the bounty, the use of the word bounty. Yeah, it's troublesome. I think, I think the, the other part of it that I thought, and I heard a little bit about this, and was the whole business about the licenses, because I know that uh, for Nepal, when they started having a um, – you know, in the 1950s, late 50s, and the 60s, there was the Yeti expeditions, the Abominable Snowman expeditions. Mm-hmm. And one one re, one thing you had to do is go to the government and get a license to hunt the Yetis. And these oh, wow. were like $10,000, $20,000. And that was a way for the government to actually make money because there were enough highly... Uh, financed expeditions that they knew that we're not going to let people into the country hunting these creatures of ours that are so precious without getting a big license. So I was thinking, is this the eventual direction that Oklahoma wants to go? I mean, nobody ever caught a Yeti and brought it back, but uh, they certainly lost a lot of money and, and, uh, the government of Nepal got even um, well financed from it, so maybe that's what Oklahoma. I mean, if you even if you're twenty dollars per laminated license, if it becomes such a, a cool souvenir, uh, you could have you know a hundred thousand people buying those licenses and and funding part of the state government. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure that's part of what the deal is. And last I heard, the guy, the congressman, he uh, wants he's going to work with the tourism bureau to set up a set of rules for the uh, for the bounty for the Bigfoot bounty. So that's so for, for anyone's like wondering, like what? Well, what's the status of this? That's the status. He's he figured out that he could get the tourism bureau to do this. Apparently, they're on board with it, and now he's going to work with them 
So at some point, probably later in the year, we'll find out what the specifics of this are. Um, and, you, and, you know, and who knows? It could die on the vine. They could be like, get the hell out of here, dude. You know, we don't want to, <laughs> like, we don't want to. Someone is going to get shot. We don't want to be responsible for this. Like, beat it. So you don't, you never know. You know, it could, it could die on the vine um, after, after uh, you know, from here on out. So we'll see. And that was um, the annual uh, Bigfoot conference in Oklahoma. Uh, so you right. have all the people there. Uh, Jefferson, Texas. Uh, is going to have Craig Wolleter's 20th annual Bigfoot conference in October. So, you know, it, it is an active area with a lot of Bigfoot hunters. And, uh, I'm sure they'll get some interest to see if there's going to be a, a lot of souvenirs produced. Now, you when you mentioned the Yeti, you reminded me of an area that I don't think we've explored before. I was thinking about tonight's conversation. I'm like, should I blast Lauren? I've had Lauren on a lot. I've had... <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to retread old ground that we've already covered before, even though some folks are listening to us talk here probably for the first time. But, um, you know, I've, I've, I've read a little bit. I'd like you to tell me more about the Yeren and the and China, I guess China, really, the Chinese, uh, you know, Bigfoot, Yeren. Because what I understand, from my scant knowledge of this, which is more than the average barrel, I'll pat myself on the back to say, is that there's like an area of, of or, or more than the average Bigfoot, right? There's an area in, in China that is like reputed to be the land of the Yeren, and it's like protected, um, and it's like a giant forest, for, like, like an enormous foresty area. That's kind of, that's the impression I'm under. And there's an area where they have like, I'm sure you've seen it, like a giant arch, of two, I think it's like two Yaren or one Yaren, but it's like a giant sort of statue tribute to this creature. So it's it's very much um, not a laughing matter over there. Uh, but there's so much secrecy in China that it's hard to really know uh, what the deal is. But you're you know you're the you're the grand poobah of cryptozoology, so I think that you would I know you know more about this than I do. So what's like I do my Jerry Seinfeld now. What's the deal with the Yaren? What's what is what's the what's the story with the with the Yaren and, and China and China's like? Do they have an active cryptozoological scene? Do they have? Bio, I, I, I think that you know, over there it would be almost like more even more scientific in a sense because it seems like there's not a lot of room for hobbyists to to go off and do stuff. But now I've rambled enough. Tell me what you know about the uh, about the Yaren and, and China and cryptozoology over there. Well, let me see. You, you've opened a lot of cans of worms. So let me try to just uh, organize my thoughts. So let me no start problem. with the giant, pan- <laughs> the giant panda. The giant panda is a creature that was really on the edge of, of extinction. Uh, and even though it was in Tibet, the Chinese feel that Tibet is part of them. So that got into politics. But, uh, in those areas where the uh, giant panda was seen, they started figuring out there were certain valleys uh, that they lived in, and they would do conservation preserves around them, uh, encourage breeding and different things like that. Now, just step a little bit further to the east, there's this enormous forested area uh 
it's a, a very long Chinese name that starts with an S. I won't even attempt to uh, pronounce it. But they decided this was an area that a lot of reports of the uh, Yaren, and the Yaren is not a Yeti, it's not a snowman, it's not a Bigfoot. It actually seems to be and looks like a reddish-furred giant orangutan uh, that was often and is part of the folklore there, uh, has traditions among the native peoples in which they know it's there. They put posters up and uh, the government put posters up asking local indigenous people for reports for active interactions and sightings and and different things like that. And in the 50s and 60s into the 70s, there were some pretty remarkable sightings where uh, Chinese communists were going down the roads, you know, maybe a group of, of soldiers or something, and they would run into these creatures on the road uh, literally, you know, almost hit them, and it became um, more than just an interest from scientists. Uh, it became a part of uh, government military action for them to understand, are these, you know, are these uh, American soldiers in costumes? Are they Vietnamese? Are they, uh, you know, paratroopers being uh, you know, parachuted in with right, right. You know, suits on. So they started looking and uh, started actually create, creating what became a provincial park, uh, a year and a sanctuary. And they did create these huge carved statues of Yerans, uh, almost like Jurassic Park where you'd enter this area and you'd have to go by these statues. And in addition uh, to that, there is this whole subculture of a real interest uh, by archaeologists and anthropologists in the scientific community in China to see if these Yeren are some way connected to the Peking men to the Homo erectus fossils, to yeah. that whole area. And so there's there's been kind of uh, really <clears throat> almost for 60 years now, uh, zoologists uh, and anthropologists have been collecting the foot and seeing if they're more ape-like, more human-like, and really involved. And then at the same time, down in Vietnam, after the Vietnam War was over, the Vietnamese scientists who were very interested in cryptozoology started coming forward and talking about the lost uh, world of of Laos and Vietnam, where they they found uh, you know new animals and new species, and, and there may be uh, a creature down there that's uh, like a wild man. They often called it, uh, yeah. and. Uh, May may be related to the Yaren, so it's it is um, it is very complex and it's very covert for most Americans. 
Uh, but there is a lot of activity, very thoughtful activity. They don't have Bigfoot conferences. They don't have Bigfoot festivals. There's not a lot of tourism connected with it. But there is a lot of science. And there's a, a because of the, uh, I, I guess you'd say the, the total, you know, the, the total control you get from the government, there's a lot of secrecy. So uh, uh, it was open a few years ago, and then, of course, it got closed down with, uh, let us say, the politics of America being very yeah. isolationist. And so it, it is, it'll be interesting if we see a reopening. Uh, the pandemic also, I think there's the whole mistrust between the United States and China has been heightened about, uh, you know, when there, we went through that unfortunate four years where uh, we came out of it calling it the Chinese flu or something. Uh, yeah. And the yeah. anti-Asian anti feelings. So it's not a good time right now to uh, expect the Chinese to open their doors to cryptozoologists. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting. It does seem like there's a few... I, can't, I don't have the article in front of me now. It came up earlier when I was looking for pictures of the Sierra and... Uh, that there is someone there's a there's a one prominent guy over there that's he's like the he's he I guess you could call him the Lauren Coleman of uh I think the article said that he spent the last obviously you've you've been in this way longer but he said he'd been there you know looking for the Yaren for like 22 years or something like that so there are people you know cryptozoologists scientist types looking for it um but yeah it's interesting it's really uh it, it, it everything is cloaked in such secrecy over there that it's hard to really you know find out what exactly what they know i guess is the is what i'm kind of driving at it's hard to really even figure that out you know yeah well there was a, a recent book that came out two years ago of uh, the mystery animals of china it was like a guidebook and that's yeah. uh, really tried to open up the culture because what has happened a lot of the scientists from the Oh, the 1950s to the 60s of all are beginning to die off, the Chinese uh, scientists. So it's yeah. about time that some new generation of cryptozoological uh, scientists and zoologists be, become interested because there's a big gap there now. Right, right. Um, yeah, well, it's interesting because it's – I don't know – I'm, the cultures are just so different, but it's like it's interesting. I'm sure if this is not the case in China, maybe it is. If I'm wrong, I apologize to any listeners in China. But to here, here it's become like Bigfoot's become just since I started the show, uh, like 15 years ago or whatever. Like Bigfoot's become like this beloved cultural icon. Um, when it, before it was like this fringe thing that that. If you were into Bigfoot, you kind of, you know, you were part of this, like, it was like a garage band kind of thing. But now it's like Bigfoot is everywhere. He's in commercials. Um, you know, it's just this beloved American icon. It's sort of like, in a weird kind of way, it's like, I guess it's the times change. And, you know, people, young people, all these young people nowadays, they don't, you know, they, they don't remember. They don't know, like, who Billy the Kid was or 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 all the sort of old folklory legendary folks um that we kind of grew up with hearing about from the old wild west and stuff like that and so like the new you know new 
new cultural figures uh, sprout up and replace them. And it seems like, for some strange reason, Bigfoot has become sort of one of those, uh, in a a really strange kind of way, I don't know if the words fit properly or not, but like a folk hero. Bigfoot's become almost like an American folk hero. Um, that that's everywhere. <laughs> that's you can you can barely turn around without seeing some kind of representation of Bigfoot um, in pop culture nowadays. It seems. Oh, that's that's very true. It's it's become a. Uh, I think I heard someone once said that uh, you could have a corporate, you know, a corporate board meeting, and you could stand up at the board meeting and say. Bigfoot exists, and I can prove it. And they said, no, you can't. And the guy said, all you have to do is, what he did, he's got one of those Tosca shoes, put it in the corner, and then invite a elementary school grade, you know, first grade in, and ask them all, what is that in the corner? And they all say, yeah. it's Bigfoot, of course. And that's that's become how how important Bigfoot is in our culture. There's not a kid that doesn't know what Bigfoot is. And yeah. when you think of it, that's just amazing. Uh, I mean, you ask them what a platypus is, you know, maybe half the kids would know, but half them would Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty, yeah, it's pretty remarkable. Um, you know. Uh, beef jerky. Beef jerky, running shoes, all kinds of. We've even we've even lost track uh, and forgotten some of the cultural things. Like, do you remember a few years ago when there was, there was a pan pizza that was called Bigfoot? I mean, vaguely, that, that's vaguely, totally, yeah. Yeah, I think it was Pizza Hut put out a a sheet of of pizza and it was called the Bigfoot. And it doesn't even exist anymore. Uh, so, you know, we're going through these popular culture references to Bigfoot so fast that we now have a whole history. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like one ad campaign will, like, come to an end, and, you know, you never really hear about it uh, again, I'm sure. Uh, you know, someday the Jack Links will move on from Bigfoot, and they'll do something else, and it'll be right. like, yeah, there was, a whole, well, there was a whole decade where they did Bigfoot stuff, so, yeah. And progressive insurance is. You know, doing an interview in the forest with Daryl. Yeah, yeah. That's a funny one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 That's one of the funnier ones. Yeah, when she calls him Bigfoot, and he's like, my name's Daryl. Yeah. It's like, yeah, that's right. great. Um, yeah, so it's it's an interesting it's an interesting case. Now, we got a, we got a question here from the chat. This is um, from Chris. He, he actually, he's the guy, today you, you, you retweeted his picture. He came to see the museum uh, a few years ago. Um, so he's, he's the one, he was, him and his wife were in front of the, the Bigfoot at the museum. Um, he has a question. He says, there are some impressive cryptozoological. What's that? What? Yeah. But no, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I was just saying they were very emotive in their, uh, their picture. Yes. Yes. Very emotive. Very emotive. He's, Chris is a very nice man, but he's very, he is, he's full of energy. He's a little, almost too energetic for me. He, very often texting, very often sending messages. I can't keep up with you, Chris. I can't keep up with you. I'm doing my best, though. So, so, but but he's got a question here in the chat. He says, there are some impressive cryptozoological artifacts at the museum, including Bigfoot scat. 
what why I'm laughing is then he asks what's Lauren what what's Lauren's most treasured cryptid artifact so I don't think he's I don't know he's not trying to apply it's the scat but but uh but maybe yes. it is. I don't know but what's your what is what is your you know what is uh what what at the museum is you know your your most cherished sort of like uh if somebody came by you you get you know you got to show them this thing well the one thing uh, that if you look over in the Yeti area, there's a, a group of items that are all pretty precious. Uh, I have uh, the flag from the 1960 Sir Edmund Hillary Expedition, World Book Expedition. That was one of the first things that I ever collected uh, in 1961 uh, from the World Book Encyclopedia Company through my sixth grade teacher, uh, he, he got it. And that was actually, uh, the flag was taken on the expedition, then brought back and given to certain um, certain World Book salesmen. And I got that, and I have had it, have it framed. Right below it uh, in the display, there is uh, a preserved hair and fecal material from the 1959 Tom Slick expedition that was given to me uh, by um, scientists that were there that had collected the samples and analyzed them for Tom Slick. It was given to me years after uh, Tom Slick had died uh, as this one scientist was um, uh, dying of cancer and he wanted it preserved in a museum uh, the Cryptozoology Museum. So those those are the most precious things because the first uh, cryptid that really interested me uh, and got me involved in the field uh, that occurred in March of 1960 when I became interested in the Abominable Snowman and the Abominable Snowman and people. And uh, you know what they say about first love? I'm sure I've told you the story before, Tim. You know, once once you uh, have that first love, you don't give it up. So, whenever yeah. the newspapers or the radio media always ask me what's my favorite cryptid, I always have to go back to the Yeti because the Yeti was my first uh, first curious uh, questions were about the Yeti, and you know, then Bigfoot came later and Loch Ness monster and all of those. But uh, I've always wondered if. Uh, the Yeti will be discovered, and it'll be too late to almost be extinct. And certainly seems the number of reports are going downhill. So. Yeah, yeah, I read something like that a few years ago. Actually, yeah, that the, the there's not that many reports, and um, so I, I I forget exactly part of the reasoning was like they don't the people who live there don't need to venture as far as they used to, or something like that. So they not necessarily. Uh, as many chance encounters, yeah. but something like well, that. Well, and since since 1959, the Chinese being in Tibet has really shut down uh, traffic and news and and adventure and expedition. So it's yeah, it's really changed. It's changed. And Nepal exclusively gone to uh, mountain climbing. You know, and those those long lines of people trying to reach the yeah, yeah. Mount Everest and, and several of them dying and stuff like that. So they hardly, it's getting too crowded to go searching for the Eddie. 
That would make sense. And, and yeah, and one would presume if there's more people doing that, then the Yeti might be compelled to move on somewhere else or something like that, too. So it's, it's, uh. Right. The, the Yeti, Yeti never yeah. lived in the mountains. It always only crossed the mountains to get to the valley. So, uh, and then you run into all those tourists. So, yeah, go might have been like, house. I'm just going to stay, stay at home. <laughs> <laughs> well, little quarantine Yeti family. Exactly. Now, I, this is an interesting thing. I don't think we talked about this. If we did back in June, I apologize. But you said something I thought was interesting because it kind of irritated me. We'll, we'll revisit it anyway because uh, I don't remember if we did or not. But the you you took issue, and I kind of did too, just because I just I don't like people necessarily co-opting our stuff, uh, so to speak. Not all the time, but the the whole Bigfoot social, you know, oh Bigfoot does social distancing. He's the he's the master social distancer, and it was kind of just cheesy and. Um, and, and you, I read a few articles where they quoted you, and you explained that that that's really not the case. That you know, Bigfoot are often seen. Uh, I, th- I think you said Bigfoot are often seen together, or they've been seen in groups and stuff like that. So, I guess talk a little bit about the the social distancing Bigfoot thing that came up last year. Well, this became a, a real thing. People wanted, actually started putting out uh, bumper stickers and T-shirts. Uh, you know, master of social distancing. And actually, what I started seeing also was uh, um, Bigfoot shown in silhouette with it holding its hand up with one finger sticking up uh, and with those slogans on. That was after we talked. It's almost like the social distancing and Bigfoot got even more raunchy. So what I told anybody told to anybody that would ask me is that Bigfoot actually isn't this alone creature that's out in the woods. Um, Bigfoot are seen in in family groups, in clans, and little uh, uh, and it's the people that, the human people that actually go hiking or go camping in wilderness areas that report groups of Bigfoot. Uh, usually, you know, one male, one female older, a younger female, and a younger male. Uh, groups of four usually are seen. And that's uh, that's very coordinated with the deeper woods, camping and hiking. The single male Bigfoot that are seen, usually very thin, very more athletic looking, crossing a road. Uh, maybe near the a lake uh, alone, those seem to be the younger adolescent Bigfoot that are being pushed out of families, which doesn't mean that they want to be alone. They're just looking for a female or looking for a group to be with. And so I, I really disputed and was really kind of upset with people uh, trying to label Bigfoot as the nature's example of an animal that likes to be alone. Uh, yeah. And that's just just not factual. Exactly. It's kind of like the, uh, how everybody, how the media always depicts the abominable snowman as a white-haired creature, and you always explain that that's not the case, but just that comes from the, the Christmas special. <laughs> but um, right. it's so indelibly... 
uh, linked that it's hard to right. un, unlink that with people. I've run into that with my job where uh, I've had to explain this to people like online. So if this ever comes up with something I write, please, <laughs> here's my reasoning, okay? With the Chupacabra, when I write, if you if you write it correctly with an S at the end, people become more confused than if you spell it the the wrong way without the S. So it's like, uh, there are other words like this, I'm sure, but it's like the the incorrect chupacabra without the S at the end. Uh, somehow people have adopted that in their minds as that's how you spell it. So anytime I have to write about the chupacabra, I always have to, I really always have to misspell it because people think I'm spelling it wrong if I spell it the proper way, which is kind of like one of those maddening uh, aspects of, of that. Right. You know what I'm that's, talking about, how the, chupa, how the chupacabra has an S at the end, but really no one ever yeah, – it, yeah, it's, 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 it's like a vestigial tail. Spanish it's like falling off. But that's the proper Spanish use of the word. And so you're you're Americanizing it and giving in to that, which that's your choice because of your journalistic approach to the chupacabras. But uh, – I mean, it's kind of like everybody wants to talk about Nessie as one creature or Bigfoot as one creature or right. the abominable snowman, and they're they're never one creatures. They're they're groups of them, uh, but it's the way it's the way people that aren't cryptozoologically aware want to think about it. And uh, I mean, mostly it's the media people that keep wanting to. And they also say, do you believe in Bigfoot? And I say, no, it's not about belief. It's about we're denying the evidence. And, you know, so I go into all these explanations and people get upset with me, but I really don't care. I mean, I've been around long enough. You know, you can yeah. go ahead and do it your way and make a mistake, or you can think about you want to educate your uh, readers to the correct form. Uh, but I think especially now, you know, especially now after the the cultural consciousness that's occurred during 2020, uh, yeah. it's, it's about time. I mean, I actually wrote a whole article how I saw chupacabras with the S on it kind of coming back in. And then you got some awful horror movies in which chupacabra was pasted all out there. And so it's also in Texas and uh uh, northern Mexico because of yeah. the American influence that you hear a chupacabra. And also the Ben Radford who just insists beyond, you know, that it has to be the Americanized way is the way to do it. And I, I think that's this cultural appropriation myself. But Interesting. Well, maybe there's a – yeah, well, maybe – that that makes me think. Maybe there's an article in there for me to write about trying to explain to people that there, there's a proper way to spell it. Um, because it, definitely the Americanized version has overtaken the original version. Even when I, and, you know, even like I'll do a search for Chupacabra and I'll find all kinds of stories. But if I do Chupacabra, the proper spelling with an S at the end, um, you know, you just don't, it's like you, it, it, fall off, it falls off the radar. So it's really interesting sort of, we're really getting sort of very in in the weeds in a sense, but 
uh, I think our listeners, they, they live in the weeds with us, so they, they don't really mind it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, well, most of the Spanish writers that I've talked to really get very upset about this. So, um, you know, no, I didn't know that. Yeah. Chupacabra. Well, it makes sense. Chupacabras yeah. is singular and plural, and it depends on the article that's in, in front of it. Um, yeah. Actually, I, I the foreign language I took in high school and college was German and uh, depended a lot on the article that would go in front of the the word, whether it would be male or female. So I understand from the language that you might be speaking that uh, the word, it's just Americans think that uh, it's kind of like Bigfoot. I've written about this too, how um, a lot of people now call the Yaron a Bigfoot. They call the Yeti a Bigfoot. Bigfoot right, right. because it's it's an American word uh, that was used is now swept over the earth because Americans are, are uh, you know, word colonialists. And we think that uh, because we say it a certain way, everybody should say it that way. Um, but I actually like uh, the diversity of of different terminologies and words. So it, it yeah. gives the local people a chance to say something about the creatures. Right, right, yeah. Well, it's very difficult, like, yeah, to explain to people in a sense, like, that the creature is akin to Bigfoot. I guess you could kind of say, like, I always, when I describe stuff like that, it's always sort of like, it's sort of like the Bigfoot of Singapore, but it's, you know, but it's a bipedal cryptid, a different kind of uh, thing, you know, but it's very, yeah, it's kind of hard for people to to wrap their minds uh, around. There's no really sort of catch-all term for, like, mystery bipedal uh, primate, you know what I'm saying? So that's kind of how Bigfoot became the, the uh, you know, the band-aid of, 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 that, of that problem, if you will. But, yeah, there's certainly a case where there's a lot of nuance involved. These aren't all the same creatures, certainly not, so... Um, well, that's why yeah. that's why I wrote the book, uh, the Field Guide to Bigfoot and Other Mystery Creatures. You know, Patrick Weege and I did because we wanted to really say there's there's a variety out there. I mean, you you have you have 450 or 60 different Native American, Native Canadian tribal groups, and almost every one has a different word for Bigfoot. But yeah. uh, or sas or sasquatch, uh, but the oma and all of the other wendigo, all of those say different things to the different uh, peoples, and uh, at some point we do have to get back to the basics. And okay, as a wendigo, what's the difference here between a wendigo and a bigfoot? Well, right, right. maybe the wendig the wendigo seems to be a little bit more aggressive. Bigfoot's not aggressive. So you start looking at those differences that maybe the words have some meaning that would be good to look deeper than just saying everything's a big, hairy giant. Right, right. we got to spread this stuff around. Let's put it on the Internet. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Great heavens. What kind of radio show is this? Because a lot of these are much, you know, they're smaller. Like the like it, oh, like yeah. Yorang Pendak is is said to be pretty diminutive. So it's 
I mean, the only thing it shares with a Bigfoot is that it's a again it's a bipedal mystery primate, right? So it's uh, that's that's all that's 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 the that's the common link. But when when you read about it, when you hear about it, sometimes people are like, it's kind of like the Bigfoot of Sumatra. So it's it's a it's a hard needle to thread in a sense. Yeah, but then you get uh, into the, you know the, the the hobbits and the Menahunis and the the little people are all kind of different and yeah. you know than the Bigfoot, but everybody wants to label them as just small Bigfoot, but they they deserve more than that. Absolutely, yeah, for sure. Um, well, you don't want to call them small. You know, no one wants to call them Smallfoot, so we're going to put, we want to stomp that out, no pun intended, <laughs> now. We don't want we want to snuff that out right away. We know, Just knock out with the Smallfoot thing. Um, right. <laughs> um, now, there's, there's not much to talk about here, but I do like to sort of make sure we have a lot of stuff here on the record for, for uh, news and stuff over the past year. We had a real bummer of a story here to start 2021. It's so – I messaged you – Right, I actually tweeted you, so it was like publicly uh, when this first kind of started percolating, the thylacine photo. And we were both kind of like, oh, here we go again. Um, and it was a classic here we go again case. Um, for folks who don't know, a fairly prominent thylacine researcher down in Australia, um, I think actually New Zealand, uh, uh, Tasmania, yeah, yeah, Tasmania, he, he said he had photos. He was, he was certain, Neil Waters. Uh, he, I think he is still. He, I think he's still sticking to his guns on this, but he he said he had a thylacine photo, and it really, I guess, I guess the, the an interesting sort of off ramp here that would be more interesting to talk about aside aside from another here we go again story is, uh, I'll, I'll set this up. And he said he had this picture. He was certain of it. He said he it, it was a picture. While wow, uh, game cam had a picture of two adult somewhat indecipherable uh canid looking creatures and um and this is his words now like an an undeniable baby thylacine he was certain of this he said it ticked all the boxes so then he announced this and it created quite a stir this is the off ramp i want to go down in a minute but it created quite a stir online then the the preeminent uh i guess you could say thylacine evidence analyst down there in australia i don't have his name in front of me but he is—he's the—he's the standard bearer. He looked at the pictures and he determined that it was some other creature. I don't have the name of that in front of me either. I should have had all this in front of me, but uh, I'm giving you all a cliff notes version. Paramelon. Yeah, yeah. It was something. Yeah, like something with like a melon sound. So yeah, yeah. So yeah, right. So so that kind of crushed the story, and it was for people who weren't a part of it it was an exciting and then it was a roller coaster of a week let's put it that way because at first it was like oh oh maybe maybe this is it maybe this is it and um nick mooney is the expert and uh he determined that they were tasmanian pan pa, uh pad padamelons um and people can google that they're kind of like little little uh i don't know what you describe them as they're like little uh they're like little tiny kangaroos actually so yeah, I like wallabies. Uh, wallabies. Yeah, there you go, wallabies. See, that's that's why you're the expert, and I'm just uh, <laughs> I'm just the radio host. So <laughs> so it was a roller coaster of a week. It was for anyone who's been in this for a long time. It was another here we go again uh, case. But I guess the off ramp I want to go down is I, I guess what do you make? Because what surprised me was that this this uh, this 
story, this claim that Neil Waters is making, it sort of leaped out from our circle, and there were a lot of mainstream biologists and scientists sort of, uh, at the very least, uh, you know, nodding at this, saying, oh, hey, everyone, uh, you know, keep an eye on this story. This is interesting. This is this guy down here is saying, and it was a lot of, uh, as they like to say, people who are on Twitter a lot, a lot of blue check marks. A lot of people with uh, quote unquote uh, credibility because they have because Twitter gave them a blue check mark, but but experts and and um, you know people uh, highfalutin folks in the scientific community and stuff like that. They were they, there was a tinge of excitement there, which I f- thought was kind of surprising because you often I often think they're uh, pretty jaded about this kind of stuff. So I guess talk a little bit, reflect on that if you will. What, what, what do you, why do you think the that resonated so much yeah. with people? Well, let me back up in your footnotes and Mm -hmm. uh, look at the chronology and look at how this guy, this guy whose name I won't even use, um, he he headed a group or he heads a group called the Thylacine Awareness Alert or something like that. Mm. He first announced, he first sent out a press release saying that, uh, you know, in a couple you know, in, in four or five days, I'm going to release these photographs. And here's what I see in the photographs. The right. first in the first great verification that the thylacine still exists. So all these mainstream media people and mainstream zoologists and biologists only had his words. Right. So that builds up psychologically in all of these folks anticipation that they're going to look at these photographs and they're going to make their judgment but they've already made their judgment they're excited they're yeah. they're fanning the fires and so then the guy releases this he said he even released it one day early supposedly you know, yeah. because he got everybody excited. Everybody started calling and stuff like that. And two of the two of the adults didn't really show much. And the one baby, quote unquote baby, turned out to be another animal. Well, do right. you know what even happened today? What I read no, today, today was released. You know, there's more today that it's been huh. discovered that on the roll of film that uh, the trail cam or whatever, there's actually other frames in there of a feral cat that has spikes on it. So he clearly, if he would have released all of the evidence, all of the photographs, it would have shown that these were identifiable known species. And he was just excited or... Uh, apparently, he has a history, it's been discovered too, of really putting out things that already turn out to be not hoaxes. Yeah. It's almost misidentification. He's a true believer. Yeah, he's yeah. a true believer. Yeah. And uh, much different than somebody just making misidentifications or a mistake. He wants to prove this exists. So that actually. Um, is bad for business. Actually, I think it's it 
you know, you get these these mainstream people excited. They feel like they put their reputation out a little bit. Then they get burned, and then it burns it for everybody for a while. Right. And if you, re- if you remember a few years ago when these guys in Georgia said they had the body of Bigfoot oh, yeah. frozen in ice. That's a legendary. A uh, new- yeah, that's legendary. The bad. I don't, infamous. Infamous. That's the word. Yeah, they had a big news conference in uh, Las Vegas. Uh, they sold the body for $18,000 to a, a Kentucky contractor, construction contractor. He took the body uh, to a hotel and had some heat, uh, you know, heat lamps or something to meld it and quickly found out within 24 hours it was a suit. Uh, but these guys had taken off with the money uh, to Russia, actually, and uh, got Russian call girls and a red sports car. Oh, boy. It's just, you know, all kinds of things happens like that, happen like that. When people get overexcited, they, they, they get caught up in their own reputation that these things exist, and then they feel embarrassed, so they really don't publicize that it's nothing more than uh, some other kind of animal or uh, a suit or whatever. So we have to be very careful. Uh, If somebody comes to me and says, I've got a picture, you want to see it? (laughs) It's like, uh, you know, why didn't you show me the picture? I don't need to answer that question. You know that I would like to see a picture of Bigfoot. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly it, yeah. Well, I think anyone... It's just these teasers. Yeah, that's that's it. That's what I was just going to say. Like, anyone who's been in this for a long time, you can kind of see, you can kind of see the writing on the wall with these things. And, And like Lauren, I mean, I don't think it's necessarily fair. In some instances, like, look, the Georgia guys with the Bigfoot, that was completely, obviously they knew that they were pulling a fast one on everybody. But but in some instances, it's uh, people get swept up in it who are innocent, true believers in a sense. But it's like a, a general rule of thumb. This could apply to like the Roswell slides from a few years ago and this thylacine thing. Is if like somebody's hyping something up that you're going to see later, chances are it's going to fall apart. Like, I mean, I, I, think, I think it's pretty much consistently it's going to fall apart. I don't know too many that people have hyped up um, that's an interesting question. I want to ask you this in a minute, but that the, yeah, the, if you if you hear somebody hyping something up ahead of time, it's like, well, uh, you know, this is this is not uh, you, you buyer beware because chances are when it finally sees the light of day, it's not going to hold up to the scrutiny of the other people. That's why if like somebody takes a picture of a Bigfoot or video or whatever, it, they're smarter. Clearly, the smart thing to do would be to get it. Don't tell anybody, but except for like experts, you know, like like pass it around to the experts or whatever first before you go on YouTube and say you've got a picture of a Bigfoot because that way you have some uh, some credibility backing you up on that. Now the question that this made me think of this is I I don't know exactly I don't recall we've talked a million times so I don't recall exactly um, when you were into this. So did you get into just answer this briefly, and then I'll get to the question. But were you in the field before or after the Patterson-Gimlin film was taken? 
long before, in 1960. Okay. And Patterson right. Gimlin was 67. Let me ask you okay. a question. Yeah. It's slightly down a different road. Okay. Why haven't they, if someone has been looking on Oak Island for two years, how is it that they still can get a TV contract to do another year? <laughs> Lawrence, I I, mean, I haven't looked recently, but uh, as of a couple of years ago, that show was like one of the highest rated programs on television. I know. So I know. if they, as long as it stays that way, they'll they'll keep digging. As long as it stays at the top of the, at the top of the heap, they'll keep digging. I don't understand it myself, but it's. Very strange. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the, the well, question I people, have for you – go ahead. People used to ask me, why is the not finding Bigfoot program still on TV? <laughs> because exactly. they have the same formula, and I like all those guys. You know, Cliff and Bobo are my very good friends, and I wouldn't take it away from them. But it is – amazing how the media can turn things back on itself and make everybody connected with those kinds of programs look like true believers that have no brains. And Oak Island, I think, is one of the best examples. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, like I said, I haven't looked in a while because it seemed like it was getting long in the tooth, but it's still on. But at the time I was looking at it, like two years ago, it was one of the if not like the highest rated show on cable, like per week, it was definitely that it definitely won the night every night, every night it was, you know, every Tuesday night it was on or whatever. And then uh, it was in the top 10 or whatever for cable every week. And I think it was at the top. Um, the question I had for you is to sort of maybe I'd like to take us back to when that movie was made, not just the Patterson Gimlin film, not the, not to talk about the veracity of it, but to sort of talk about the mood in a sense Comparing it to this thing that happened with the thylacine photo, I guess the question I have is like, okay, so you're you're Lauren Coleman, it's 1970 something, and and how did you, what was, how did like word get out about this movie? Because there was no, um, there was no internet, so there was no way that like it it spread the way things spread now. So to sort of give me an idea of what it was like, give the listeners an idea of what it was like back then. Like, when did you hear, oh, these two guys in California might have filmed a Bigfoot, and how long did it take before you could actually see it? And 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 were they hyping it up before they showed it to anybody, or was it just something that all of a sudden you guys heard about? Like, oh, my God, these guys in California filmed a Bigfoot. Like, what was the mood like? What was the scene like? How did that unfold when it happened? Because... I'm willing to bet the vast majority of the listeners weren't weren't around for that, and I I would love to know what that was like. So so take us back to that period. Well, the film was actually taken October twentieth, nineteen sixty-seven. Okay. So there was sorry, sorry. The, the way that people heard about Bigfoot was occasional newspaper articles, but mostly magazine articles and uh, books, you know, you'd have to get a, find a book. And there were a few books that came out between 61 and 67. Um, but the way that that film unfolded was um, Ivan T. Sanderson was brought in very quickly uh, by Roger Patterson and, and uh, 
the other people that were, and that that was California was where it was taken. Patterson lived up in Washington State, and Sanderson, some other scientists like John Green in British Columbia, were brought in, and it was actually shown uh, up in British Columbia to a group of scientists, and they were pretty amazed. You know, there were some skeptics and and uh, some critical thinkers who said, well, hmm, very interesting. I don't know exactly how it was done. So there's no real shouting out right away that it was yeah. a hoax or a man in the suit. Sanderson got involved, and he had lots of connections to the Philadelphia Zoo, to scientists on the East Coast, and he got a showing uh, with some of his uh, scientist friends at the Smithsonian. And so between the group of scientists at the uh, University of British Columbia Museum uh, and uh, Smithsonian, we heard about it mostly through word of mouth, you know, letters or uh, yeah. different little articles. Nobody really showed any of the film. And it wasn't until Ivan Sanderson, who was an editor of Argosy Magazine, did a spread in there in which he showed frames of the film. And then in British Columbia, a few years later, I think 72, they had a conference, a Sasquatch conference, and the book was published of those proceedings, and they showed uh, slide, you know, kind of photos yeah. from the. And so most of us didn't even see the film until it appeared in uh, a couple, uh, like, filler features that were shown in the theaters. I remember going to um, a movie. There was some other nature film, and there was this less than 20-minute film of Bigfoot, and that film, the Patterson film, was in it. So... uh, it's it was a very different world. You're right. There was no internet. There was no streaming on your telephone. I mean, that was this was science fiction that we're, yeah. we're talking about. You know, if, I couldn't imagine. I was just talking to somebody the other day. It's pretty remarkable that we're actually talking to each other through Zoom. Uh, you know, in real time. Yeah, we're yeah. watching movies on our phones. So. You know, that's how it came to us. It was very slow. It was very plodding. And it wasn't, uh, it was more like the way that we wish it would happen nowadays. As far as if somebody finds a Bigfoot, I don't want them to have a news conference in um, Madison Square Garden. I want them to (laughs) take the body to the Department of Anthropology and, uh, you know, have people study it and, yeah, not cut it up. I want it to be live, but I don't want it to be exploited. I don't want people to find out that it's a a, a person in a suit in the middle of news conferences in New York City. I'd rather yeah, yeah. get proper proper vetting before it gets to us. But it won't. You, it won't. Not not with no, the not the way it is going. nowadays. No. No. Did you do you remember when that was that you saw it in the theater? Like what year, roughly? Uh, roughly 
69, 70, you know. Okay, so like three years. So it like took like oh, three. Yeah. That's amazing. And oh, and yeah. for people like that, it, it's, in a way, it's sort of like the Zapruder film, I think, too. It's like, I'm sure, you know, young Lawrence sitting there, he's watching this movie. You see the the film, right? But like, okay, I can only imagine how maddening that must be because you're in the movie theater. You see the movie. It's not like nowadays, folks. You can't go home and Google it. Like, you just <laughs> – if Lauren wanted to see the movie again, that – if Lauren wanted to see the Patterson Gillen movie again, he'd have to buy another ticket to this nature film and sit there and try and pay as close attention as possible. It's like you can't – you couldn't even analyze it or anything, right? Right. And uh, most of us were good, solid Midwestern people. We didn't take a camera into the theater to – to get yeah, a shot yeah. of it. <laughs> you know? We just would watch it over and over again. And it wasn't until years later. And of course, uh, it wasn't until N.K. Davis did his computer enhancement. Uh, yeah. Like a decade or two later, whenever we could really see the minutia and the detail in the film. So yeah, it was frustrating. Yeah, I can imagine. I think it's instructive, I guess, to sort of drive that point home to people that, like, they filmed it in 67, um, but you, it, it's, it's ubiquitous. It's, it's ubiquitous right. online Argosy. now, but, <laughs> yeah, whole Argosy different world. The article, I, I think, did come out until 68, uh, and if you think of all of the other things that were breaking and, like, the Minnesota Iceman was 69, the article came out after that. People couldn't see the picture of it because it was an ice. Hoyleman's book didn't come out till much later. So it's it's just amazing how things were slowed down yeah. out of necessity because the media wasn't where it is today. Absolutely, yeah. It's a whole different world. Um now, we'll move on a little bit from the cryptid stuff. we got a half hour left, so let's talk a little bit about sort of uh, world events and, and things of that nature. Um, now, you mentioned today, uh, for people who were sort of listening to this later, there was, a, I guess, an attack on the Capitol. Uh, yeah, it was an attack on the Capitol. Some guy, a lone, a lone figure. Um, you know, it's worrisome in a sense. It's very worrisome. It's, uh, it's I guess, people – say, for the last year, the mantra's been like, oh, we just want to go back to normal. We just want to go back to normal. And I think what people forget is that no, the, the, the normal, there's a lot of bad stuff that, that, was in, that, that, that was a part of the old way of living. And if we're going to go back to the old way of living, we're going to see that bad stuff come back, which is what we're seeing over the last few weeks with these mass shootings. Um, it's kind of interesting, I, I guess... I mean, it's kind of common sense. Okay, of course, there aren't mass shootings because there's no mass gatherings. But it is interesting that that, there, that these things just stopped when the pandemic came about. Now that the pandemic started starting to go away, these things have started coming back. So, um, and the worrisome thing is uh, that that you can, you've got a lot of people who are bottled up, and now uh, worried that the the cork has popped, and who knows what's going to happen next. But I guess what's your what's your take on this uh, worrisome uh, rash of, of shootings and incidents over the last, like, three or four weeks? 
Well, first of all, they didn't stop. There was over 200, 220 mass shootings in the United States in 2020. Oh, really? What was happening? Yes, what was happening was the mainstream media, uh, as I wrote in the copycat effect, the mainstream media really uh, has control of whether or not we know about a mass shooting. So what did the mass media want to talk about in 2020? Two things. Our then-president, who was narcissistically a uh, individual that loved the media and soaked up the media like a sponge. And the other thing was, of course, the pandemic. So in a... In the vacuum that's caused by someone and something taking all of the media's attention, the media makes us think that there were no shootings. And in my book, I wrote about this, how uh, after 9-11 and the invasion of Afghanistan, the media concentrated so much of their attention on the war on terror that they did not talk about mass shootings. And so everybody in the United States thought that there were no mass shootings and the copycat effect really was proven because there weren't that many mass shootings then. After 9-11, after an assassination of a president, during a depression, uh, and actually even in uh, events like uh, over in Vienna, they noticed that there was lots of suicides by people jumping off of of, uh, subway station platforms. And so what the government of Vienna did was make all of the newspapers quit reporting on those suicides. Ah, the number of suic- the number of suicides went down by ninety percent. So this is what happens. Now we're in a new administration. We're in a new year. Uh, everybody supposedly has hope with the vaccine, and the media is looking around for news, news that they can report on. If you notice, there was a little upswing and talk about shark attacks. There also then became, uh, you know, the different uh, mass shootings. And there were more mass shootings before the one that they started really talking about first, which was the uh, the Asian women at the massage places. Right. Yeah, that's and the one that was like the first. That, they went crazy about The first one, even though there was... 19 before that this year, but they didn't report on it. So what we're getting back back into is the normalcy with the copycat effect. Uh, Once you start talking about them in the media, if it bleeds, it leads. You're going to get more and more. Uh, And also this was Good Friday. So Good Friday, uh, you know, had had a capital attack, a capital police officer was killed, the suspect was killed. It turns out 
Uh, he was a Nation of Islam individual uh, from Norfolk, Virginia. And so the media is already talking about this individual as being mentally ill. It wasn't a terrorist attack. Uh, the Hispanic man that killed individuals last week was uh, in the supermarket. I, it was a mental health problem. The individual that killed all of the uh, people in the office building two nights ago was uh, domestic violence. So the, the media is being very careful and they're trying to individually explain all of the uh, mass shootings yeah. in individual ways because they don't want to talk about the responsibility of the media. They don't want to talk about how the United States is the one location in which guns are so accessible because they yeah. don't want to go down the road of, you know, Democrat versus Republican. Yeah, it's divisive topic, uh, yeah. Gun control, yeah. So it, it's just we've got to look at this a little bit deeper. We're going to mm-hmm. see more gun, mass shootings. We're going to see um, more name games, you know, like uh, the one in Colorado had so many Lafayettes in it. I got very tired of of looking at that. Yeah. But, you know, we're gonna we're seeing it all over again. You know, the the words Lincoln and Lafayette and uh, all of those from the past are back. So it was a break. No mass shootings were in the newspaper, but they were happening. Interesting. Okay. Um. Well, yeah. Another thing, it's odd, and I haven't read enough yet about this guy today, but the. There's an interesting, and I'm sure it's always been this way, you're right. It's like now this is like kind of what I've noticed the media mentioned. Like the guy in Nashville who blew up his RV there, um, the, it came about that he was like, that he was, I shouldn't laugh, but it was like that he believed in reptilians. I guess the, the point I'm trying to make is like I, I'm seeing a lot of these incidents, and today I heard that this guy – he seemed to think he, he he was one of those targeted individuals. He thought the government was like targeting him with uh, clandestine weapons and all that, you know, microwave stuff and that, all, all variety of uh, things. Um, but I'm seeing sort of this trend in a way, slight trend, where there the, the people, certain conspiracy theorists and sort of conspiracy ideas are being connected to this stuff. Where it's like this may not necessarily be clearly it's a mental health issue. Um, you know, but it, but it's very there's a very anti-conspiracy sort of slant to a lot of this stuff, which is I haven't really seen in a while. So I think it's the I think it's the pushback on the QAnon stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, the guy in Nashville uh, was interesting because he did think he heard voices and all of that stuff, and he blew up the bomb right next to the AT and T building. Right. So he was trying to. But have you had Mike Cleveland on your uh, your show? Uh, a long time ago, I did, yeah. Yeah, he likes things owls believe... or aliens and stuff. Right. So did you notice uh, where the guy in Nashville actually blew up his bomb? Right next no. to Hooters. Yeah. <laughs> Hooters is, <laughs> is now. So there was a lot there. So you can, there you you go. can unwind these and look at it. But nobody's looking that way at any of these new mass shootings because we now are in the post-conspiracy 
times post-Trump. In other words, the pendulum went one direction, which everybody, and, and also January 6th was very hard on America. It actually, we got to see what all of these pro-conspiracy people would do, you know, invade the Capitol, invade Congress. And that was, yeah. that was shocking. So what's happening with all of how the police and the media are dealing with these mass shootings is they're going the other direction uh, with any conspiracy. I mean, this guy today is Noah X, you know, I, he was only a black Muslim. He wasn't a real Islam uh, worshiper. He wasn't Islamic. He wasn't, uh, you know, a terrorist. And so there's all these explanations. I, I think that the, the danger of all of this is that people are going to ignore conspiracies that really come along. I mean, we all know Lincoln was killed, uh, assassinated, due to a conspiracy. It was an yeah. actual group of individuals. And there's still some doubt about whether JFK was. You know, was it a conspiracy or was it a lone nut? And we're right at that juncture all over again. And I I mean, not to, that I ever predict anything. Yes, I do. Um, <laughs> but I think, I think that uh, we have to look very carefully if uh, President Biden has any kind of accident or uh, if there's any attempt on his life, will people overlook the possibility that it might have been a conspiracy or will they quickly go to this place that's happening so quickly with all of these mass shootings in which it's got to have an individual explanation, lone nut, person's depressed, it's domestic violence. Whatever. So we've got to be careful with uh, the quick explanations that are coming out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Now, Zach Copley wants to know if you think the how much of the way the media covers things is – okay, He actually, he said you just answered it, so that's good. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> well, one of the things – we I'm sure we talked about this in June, and um, I joked with you this week that we finally – we got our wish. Our wish came true because – Last year, there was like one or two plague doctors running around in England, and I was like, this would be fun if if this became the new clown thing. And lo and behold, uh, over the last like two or three weeks, uh, the plague, the phantom plague doctor craze has come to England, and um, I just Actually, did a check. Actually, isn't it more in Scotland? No, 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 it started in Scotland, and it spread to England. Um, oh, okay. uh, yeah, check out that article I wrote earlier in the week because it started in Scotland and then all of a sudden what's going on here, it's a little complicated, but what's going on is it started in Scotland and then there have been a few that have appeared in England and also there's, you know, these like local social media groups like, uh, you know, like I live in Burlington, Mass, so it's like Burlington, you know, Burlington Facebook groups, so it's only the people there that they're on there, but in, in all these little individualized local social media groups. There's like rumors going around that there are pl- that somebody saw a plague doctor. They don't necessarily have a picture of him or a video or her or whatever. Uh, they 
just somebody posts in the group, oh, I saw a plague doctor, and he was chasing after kids. And then it creates this stir in the community, kind of like the Phantom Clown thing. I mean, who? how many pictures of Phantom Clowns really ever emerged? Not that many. So um, we just didn't have the social well, media the, aspect. It, but God, It was the difference between the Phantom Clowns versus the Stalking Clowns. The Stalking Clowns were the ones that got pictured so much. But the Phantom yeah. Clowns were the ones seen by kids that nobody ever got the pictures. So yeah, I think it's the it's kind of going backwards. People were are seeing stalking plague doctors and then it's going to the rumor phantom plague doctor right. phase. You know what I mean? Right, right. I understand. Yeah, yeah. If you if you differentiate them, yeah. There's there's the there's the apocryphal fan, uh plague doctors and then there's uh the there are certainly I've seen videos and pictures of, of actual quote-unquote plague doctors walking around in towns and stuff in England. So it's, for people who have been wondering, yes, the plague the plague doctor thing is, it's, uh, I, I, I pat myself on the back, because it seems like the, the European media finally, or the British media, picked up on the same thing I noticed, because I noticed that there was cases all over England, and no one seemed to have connected the dots yet um, until later on this week. But when I wrote about it earlier in the week, I was like, hey, wait a minute, this is happening um, it's, it's, it, you know, it's popped up all across England and I, I don't know the geography of England well, but I, you know, I would punch them into the Google maps and it was like, okay, this one's like 300 miles away from the other one. So it's not the same guy running around this different town or whatever. So it's a very interesting, you know, uh, phenomenon, I guess you could say. It's not, not unlike the clowns at all, really. No, I think it's exactly like them. It's just, I think, flipped, flipped over because... Yeah. Before they were actually able to see the clowns, they reported the phantom ones. And I think what you're describing and what I did read about it, that they're actually taking the videos and the pictures of the plague doctors and they're physical and they're real. Now people people are psychologically getting into the rumors and the individual groups and they're not seeing them. You know what I mean? Yeah. They're saying that. So it's, it's interesting. I wonder if it'll come. I reported on some of the ones, uh, you know, in Florida and the plague doctors over here. Uh, and those were people that dressed up as plague doctors and went around and yelled at people about not wearing masks. So yeah. it might it might come back to the United States, although we're in a really weird place about that. Yeah, well, it's funny that 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 you mentioned that cuz the a couple of british police departments um you know took to social media and they were like hey look at these are just rumors we don't have any actually have we the police don't have any actual reports of these of these uh plague doctors no one's seen them so just don't worry it's just a rumor they attributed it to tiktok which makes perfect sense because that's um, like the ba- the bane of the paranormalist's existence is TikTok nowadays because everybody wants to go viral and so they're faking all kinds of stuff. Um, right. The thing that amused me was the was both police departments said this is a viral craze that came from America, and it's like oh we get blamed <laughs> for a lot of stuff, but don't blame us for the plague doctors, man, because we you know I- I'm not seeing the same plague doctor craze in America that I'm seeing in England whatsoever. Uh, as far as these sort of random appearances by plague doctors. There's a couple, you know, like you were saying, the guy in Florida, 
people trying to be cheeky and going to Walmart dressed as a plague doctor, that's a whole different thing than 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 what we're hearing in England, which is the cross between the phantom and the stalking plague doctors. Yeah, yeah, it's widespread over there. Yeah. Like, uh, they, they had the whole uh, social worker, phantom social workers, too. Happens yeah, I was... England. I was hearing about that. What do you know about that phantom social workers thing? Because uh, I saw uh, Theo Pagemas had written about it on Twitter, and I was like, I'd never heard this story. So w- w- what is that all about, phantom social workers? Oh, there was, uh, you know, social workers showing up at homes and knocking on the door to take the kids away. So uh, I think I saw a couple articles in the, in the Fortean Times, you know, it was, and that was a few years ago. So, uh, yeah. But it was something that people were looking at as, uh, you know, in between the clowns. So. Very weird. Know, it's just very, very weird. Yeah. Because it almost it's very like, worrisome. Uh, yeah, child, child, uh, you know, being stolen. So kidnapping. Yeah. But, exactly. You know, I, I mean. And uh, you have the Pizza Gate over here, and oh, yeah. you know, all of that. Is that phantom or is that real? Stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Very, yeah. Well, this country's. Very, very, yeah. This country's lost its mind on conspiracy theories. <laughs> so yeah. I don't. I don't even know where to begin on that. Yeah. This kind. Of, it's uh. It's scary. I'd have to agree with you. Yeah. It used to be like we were on the fringe, and we enjoyed, you know, the conspiracy theories used to be kind of fun. Let's be honest; they, they, for the most part, they were kind of like, okay, this is this is this is fun. But now it's just like, oh my god, I don't even want to, I don't even want to get into conspiracy. <laughs> I don't want to even get into conspiracies. Right. They're just, they're just unsettling. Um, now, one other thing I wanted to ask you about. Now, this was not specific to this case, there, but there was a case that down in. I want to say Nebraska, where they uh, they found a flag that was all torn up, and um, this lady, I don't know her name off the top of my head, she runs a Bigfoot museum in Nebraska, and she examined the flag and said that it looked like it had been braided by Bigfoot. How how exactly she knows this is anyone's guess, but she 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 believes that that's the case. So it's on display in this Nebraska. She has a Bigfoot museum, actually. Ironically enough, we're talking about museums. So she has a, a Bigfoot museum where you can see the braided flag. But the thing I wanted to ask you about is the whole braiding thing with Bigfoot. Sorry to pivot back to cryptozoology, but this is one of my notes of, of stuff that I never really recall asking you about. So um, what do you make of that that whole milieu, if you will, of, of, of Sasquatch uh, research, the theory that, that there's braiding, that they braid things and that kind of stuff? Well, um, I'm very suspicious of the braiding of the uh, of the nests that look like uh, fallen trees that go into teepee sort of shapes. Yeah. Uh, I think there's natu- natural ways that some of those uh, happen, and then you put the human in the equation, put on it uh, this intervention by Bigfoot or you know the the missing four one one that takes statistics and uh, over exaggerates them and sees Bigfoot yeah. in everything. Uh, so I've seen some of the braiding of the horse's hair 
and that seems to be something that kind of naturally happens with long hair, you know, in dogs and, and right, cattle right. and horses. So uh, I just think I, I mistrust it right now. I'm, I'm suspicious. I'm very open-minded to having real evidence shown to me, but I haven't been shown anything in that spectrum to uh, really believe that it's happening. Yeah, yeah. It's a little fantastic. That's probably the best way to put it, uh, in my opinion. It seems almost too fantastic to uh, to you, you want to believe it, like, it's like, all right. Back to conspiracy theory, it's kind of, you know, uh, have you been to Mystery Hill, America's Stonehenge, you know, up yes. in New Hampshire? Yeah, yeah, you that know, was in my uh, notes. Uh, yeah, about the uh, about the it, vandalism and everything. I've been there a few times. Yeah, yeah, the, it was vandalized. They recently caught the guy and everything like that. And, um, they were looking at some of the things that were written on it, and one of the things that was written was uh, it looked like I A M A R K something like that. And they were trying to associated with different conspiracy and QAnon and different things like that. And it did turn out to be that, but even more so, it was the guy who did the vandalism actually had put his signature on it because it was I am Mark. Yeah. I, I am Mark. And it's kind of like sometimes we get so involved in the conspiracy or the paranormal explanation or the cryptozoological explanation that we sometimes forget to step back and just look at it kind of very overtly. What is being shown to us? What does yeah. this look like? And uh, I, I, I try to do that critically with everything that I'm investigating. Absolutely, yeah. Well, it's a little bit of a that's a little bit of a sticky wicket because he did do the QAnon WW whatever that slogan is. He scratched that into the one of the rocks, and he also scratched because he's a math criminal mastermind. He also scratched his Twitter handle into the into the rock. So it was, there there was sort of a dual thing going on there. He was undoubtedly a QAnon adherent um, who also foolishly decided to. To give a direct clue to his identity in the, <laughs> but I guess you know arsons right, right. arsons go to the scene of the fire, right? So it's some people can't exactly, help themselves. Right. right. Um, no, no, I, I agree. I, it was a conspiracy, but he actually had left a message about who he was. So I'm glad yeah. they're kind of funny. Um. Well, we're right at the we're right at the end of the hour, and I know uh, I've taken up a ton of your time, so I'm not going to try and uh, squeeze more uh, squeeze more out of you because I know you'll come come back in the future. I know, I know, it flew by, it flew by, man. I I I can't believe it. So let's let's spend the next like five minutes, and if we go over a little bit, that's fine. But let's spend the next five minutes telling people. um, First of all, now you got. You got a million books. What's coming out? You got any new books coming out, um, you know, this year or next year or in the near future? Well, um, I'm trying to finish up, uh, you know, Mark A. Hall. He died a couple years ago. Um, yeah. And he, and he left behind uh, the manuscript to uh, his Murbeings book. 
So I'm taking his old manuscript that uh, kind of floated around between publishers and adds some new things to it. But it's it's a Marquet Hall book in which he uh, he certainly speculated on what if mermaids really are real and then looked at it. And yeah. I did this with his his book uh, True Giants. So this year I'm I'm doing uh, trying to publish uh, the Merbeings book. Uh, but I I always have a whole bunch of books on the on the back shelf on the extra burner, including yeah. um, including a Synchro Mystique, a book that I've been planning for a few years. Synchro oh, Mystique nice. is. Really, Looking at the name game and uh, Fortean phenomena, and, and also doing that and um, Patreon, I'm trying to switch over from a, a blog that I've been doing for years and years for free, and decide to see if I can get a little subscribe. That seems to be this is the encouragement of my of my wife who thinks that I'm doing too many things for free. So you have to listen to your wife occasionally. You know, and so we'll see if as long I as Lauren, Lauren, like I don't yeah. know if you'll get this joke, but I don't know if you'll get this joke. But as long as we don't see you on OnlyFans, I think we're going to be okay. Do you, do you know? I, I, <laughs> I won't. I won't. I won't get that. I don't get that joke because I don't know what OnlyFans. <laughs> good. 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 <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. Well, we'll leave it at that. But that's <laughs> but Pat. But, but yeah, pa- Patreon is uh, is per- is perfectly fine. Um, okay. <laughs> the okay. So the other the other thing. Uh, the uh, okay. So tell us a little bit more about the museum. Uh, ours, you know, uh, what people can expect to come and check it out. What like as you said, you got. You, I don't know if you know. I think you did say you. you yeah, it's going to be the giant salamander. So like, what can people? Come up and check out. Um, you would be doing that in October. Do you have anything you're going to roll out this summer that people might uh, want to put on their calendar, or is it sort of you're still rolling out the Bigfoot stuff and, and recovering from last year and sort of re, re, this, this refresh of the museum that's expanded? Well, um, for one thing, we have are coming out of the pandemic, you know, the closed time. Then we went from the closed time to over the winter we were only open four days a week because yeah. – uh, because of fiscal things. But as of April 1st, we went back to being open seven days a week. So people can now come up any day of the week and we'll be open from 11 o'clock on. And then the middle of the month, we're going to go all the way to six. So we'll be 11 to six. We're still expanding. We took over the restaurant area. So we've expanded that area and we're, looking at new exhibits, putting up new exhibits all the time. Uh, and uh, the the restaurant uh, actually gave up the seating area to the museum, and we're, that's now our entrance. But uh, the Vissel Brothers, which is the brewery next door to us, uh, are leasing out the kitchen that used to be there. Yeah. And so this week a whole new wall uh, was built between us, so we're going to have new art up uh, up front in the gift store, and it looks like we're going to do a whole paint job that's going to be aqua, you know, turquoise, which is kind oh, of nice. become our color. <laughs> so, 
And then the the Children's Museum is going to open across the way, and we've uh, they've got some big new tanks of salamanders and, and ocean life, so that'll be interesting. And we're thinking about uh, interacting and coordinating with them about that. So that'll be awesome. We think there's there's cryptids everywhere, so uh, it's kind of exciting times. And and then uh, I don't think it's going to happen this fall because it seems to be too uh, too quickly. But we're going to to another um, conference. Excellent. And we're talking to actually actually some people uh, in England to come over to be speakers. Oh, nice. Uh, if the travel, yeah, maybe we'll even have a uh, a guy named Tim back as our MC. He was very good. Oh, thank you. We'll see. Yeah, we'll have to talk about that. We'll have to talk about that. Yeah. Um, well, I can't thank you enough, uh, Lauren, for doing this, coming back on the show in less than a year. Mm-hmm. I usually don't do this kind of thing, but, um, you know, but all of America, we were, this show was built on legends, um, and uh, I've said a lot of times, and you, I really hold you up as sort of the as as sort of the example of this in a way where it's like I hear a lot of people online, they kind of whine. They're like, you know, they come into this and they're new and they're like, oh, the gatekeepers don't, the gatekeepers don't, you know, they don't want us to be a part. It's like, look at man. No, the, 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 the so-called gatekeepers, they held the door open for me, man. Like everybody I've ever encountered in this field who was a, a quote-unquote big name um, was always incredibly welcoming to me and incredibly helpful and um, – you know, God rest their souls, guys like Stan Freeman and Jim Mars, uh, two guys who were like the foundation of this show, they they were so nice to me and so accommodating and you you're uh you're just in, in line with that with that attitude. You were just so super helpful to me over the years and um and so, you know, my my attitude when I hear these people go, Oh, the gatekeepers, the gatekeepers it's like look, maybe you're maybe you're maybe you should knock on the gate instead of instead of whatever you're doing to the gate. You know, it's like uh people people in the field are very helpful and very accommodating if you come at them um you know, in the right way. So and, and you've always been super helpful to me and super accommodating and super supportive. So I consider you a dear friend and uh I appreciate that that we're, we're getting you back on the show on a more frequent basis. So thank you, thank you so much for coming back and helping us kick off this new round of uh, conversations. Well, thank you, Tim. You you embarrassed me with your your praise. Thank you, though. Um, it's really great to be here, and uh, it's always fun to talk baseball with you too. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Well, we didn't. We, I get the complaint emails if we. <laughs> oh no! If we, no if we, I, I meant off, I meant off the air. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Well, we'll have plenty of time, and uh, I'll be in touch. I'll let you know. Uh, I'll try and now that I've got the jab, now that I'm in the clear, I can definitely make it up to uh, Maine and not worry about things. So I'll definitely uh, I'll be in touch this summer, and I'm sure I'll see you at some point. Okay, take care and be safe. Thank you. You too. Have a good one. Bye-bye. There you go, folks. That was Lauren Coleman. Fascinating conversation. Big thanks to uh, JJM3233, who was in the chat room, Zach Copley, Jim Vujovic, uh, Chris from We Have Fun Official. Um, They were uh, burning up the wires there in the chat room. Yeah, so this uh, this is the start of a new series of conversations, as I said. I don't really have much to say it's a little bit sort of by the seat of my pants. I think I mentioned this at the end of our coronavirus anniversary show that uh that I, I really procrastinated a lot and didn't do 
a lot of the stuff that I wanted to do, as you can tell, because we're still on blog talk. But um, I still have aspirations. That must count for something, right? I still, I still aspire to upgrade the quality of the show. So I'm hoping that uh, that you know that there'll, there'll be some episodes here where we utilize some of the more advanced equipment that I have that I just am too lazy to really finish plugging in all the stuff and crossing the wires and really getting the technical digital end of things right um, to do this. Although, to, you know, I guess to my credit, tonight when I log into Blog Talk to do the show, it says, oh, the Skype the Skype connection's broken tonight. Sorry for the inconvenience. So were I still on, – I am on Blog Talk, but were I on Blog Talk and trying to use the Skype, um, you know, it would have been a nightmare. We would have been doing the show on phone anyway. So – but be that as it may, I do I do want to uh, get sort of more contemporary here with the technology of the show. But I'm also, uh, as we've said uh, many times on Banal America, I'm lazy. I'm lazy as sin. So, uh, and I like the old style way that we do these shows. So we'll uh, we'll see what happens. But I know for sure if I were to tell you that I had a vision of what we're going to do here from beginning tonight. I guess it would be – I'm envisioning like nine episodes, um, maybe ten for, uh, for just, to, just to satisfy my OCD. But like ten episodes here in the spring um, under no particular sort of banner. Uh, as I said, I sort, of thought, I, I sort of thought about calling it the spring series or the spring sessions. And maybe I'll come around to calling them the spring sessions as we get along uh, week after week. But right now it's just been all – it's just BOA 2021. It's just we're back. We're doing shows. Um, I'm planning to do 10. I guess you could say, yeah, we're going to say 10 now because uh, it sounds better in my mind. So we're going to do 10 shows um, over the next 10 weeks. Maybe I'll take a week off somewhere in the middle, but uh, I'm hoping to do 10 shows. And then oddly enough, um, 10 weeks from now we get right to uh, the start of summer. So maybe then – We'll uh, take a couple weeks off, come back, and uh, roll out another summer of strangeness and, uh, you know, do another 10 shows uh, over the summer. Um, I think we did like 13 or 14 last summer. So, you know, I'm looking at doing a a healthy chunk of programs here uh, over the next few weeks and months um, now that uh, winter is over and the thaw has begun. And so on that note, uh, next week on the show – I haven't gotten absolute confirmation from him, but I booked this like six weeks ago, and I talk to him all the time. So I'll I'll drop him a line later tonight to make sure. Um, But uh, based on my chicken scratch schedule here for uh, BOA 2021, next week on the program, uh, same but all time, 9 p.m., Friday night, we will uh, be speaking to our old friend, Adam Gorightly, who uh, has a new book, um, which, of course, I don't have the information in front of me because uh, I am the world's least prepared podcaster. So uh, it's something like Spooks, Kooks, and Flying Saucers. Um, I'll, I'll have a full, proper plug, of course, when we get him, uh, when we get him on the show, but uh, yeah, he's got a new book. Everybody's talking about it. It's uh, it's fantastic, and um, uh, I'm about halfway through it, and I'm really enjoying it, and I'm going to have it finished uh, by the time we talk to him next week. 
So yeah, he'll be on uh, next next Friday night. And uh, here it is, Saucers, Spooks, and Kooks is the book. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll have him on next Friday night to talk about that. Um, and I guess if I, like I said, if I had a vision for this period here, uh, I really liked what we did last summer where we brought in a lot of new people. So I, I could see us doing that in the summer and maybe spending these 10 weeks here uh, in the spring catching up with old friends who we haven't had on the show um, in a while. Because, uh, you know, we wrapped up in All of America as a seasonal style program, season one, season two, all the way up to season 10. Um, we wrapped that up like three years ago, almost to the day, or it was like late April. So like three years ago, we wrapped up uh, the seasonal style of an All-American. Now it's sort of scattershot how often I do programs. And a lot of the folks who were on that final season were longtime guests, um, like Adam Gorightly, um, who have not been back on the program in a long, long time. So that's kind of the idea here. We're going to catch up with some old friends and see what they've been up to over the last three or four years uh, since we talked to them. And so next week, it'll be Adam Gorightly. A few weeks after that, uh, it'll be somebody else. A few weeks after that, it'll be somebody else. So we're 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 kind of going to go through the Rolodex and try and catch up with some, uh, some old friends here on Banal of America. And if you want to hear from somebody that you haven't heard from in a while on BOA, um, shoot me a message on Facebook or Twitter. Or uh, through Banal of America, info at banalofamerica.com. So uh, let me know who you want to hear from that hasn't been on the show in a while. And if we can, we'll get in touch with them and get them on the program. So, yeah, with all that said, uh, again, big thanks to Lauren Coleman for helping kick off the start of uh, 2021 Banal of America slate of programming. And uh, thank you all for listening. We're back, baby. We'll talk to you next week. Until then, this is Tim and all, thanking you once again for listening and signing off. Yeah.